Good morning. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to walk in the light so that the darkness does not overtake us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we come together on this uh, Good Friday, we are in some unsettling times for the world and for Christians in particular. Christians are, at the present time, sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. But this is the moment, Jesus says, when the ruler of this world will be cast out. For if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And we're, we're in a moment when large parts of our culture do not understand the significance of this weekend. They don't recognize it, and they think that it's more important that they can shop in Walmart than be in the house of God to hear the Word of God preached, to gather around His table. And that's a huge change, even over the last 50 years uh, in this country. Now, in our text today... The Gentiles, this is what's so fascinating about it, the Gentiles ask to see Jesus. Some Greeks asked to see Jesus. They had no conception of the imminent suffering of the Lord Jesus. They had no grasp of the atonement or its meaning They had no appreciation in their culture for God's wisdom and power in the covenant of grace. And yet they're coming at this moment in the the gospel. And the question that they asked pointed to the meaning of the day that we're recognizing and commemorating again today, Good Friday. Because we're in a culture again, aren't we, that is in desperate need of seeing Jesus. Just like these early Greeks. Just like these Gentiles here in the gospel. And there are actually three questions in John chapter 12. In this uh, section that we've read. That bring out for us the glory and the power of cross that help us actually to see Jesus for who he really is today. And so the first question in the passage is that question of these Greeks. We wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now you're here today, so... In some measure, that is true for you. And maybe you're uh, inquiring uh, 
in a unique way today about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? What's this all really about? Why is it so important? These first Greeks, though, these Gentiles, they were caught up in a national religious enthusiasm of a crowd that were coming for the Passover feast at that time in Jerusalem. And they wanted to know what was going on. It seems the procession that we refer to now in the Christian tradition as the triumphal entry had actually come to an end in the outer precinct of the temple, that temple, and that was the part that the Gentiles were allowed into. And among the crowd were these interested, we might even call them God-fearers, broadly people who believed in God. You know, if you, if you do a survey of Canadian culture, generally speaking, the vast majority of people still believe in some kind of God. They don't really know who he is. They certainly don't understand his righteousness and his justice, otherwise they'd be here this morning or in some other place of worship, worshiping the living God. But these were, these were Gentiles, these were Greeks, and the Greeks were interested in all that kind of thing. They found something attractive about the faith and enthusiasm of these children of Abraham, these Jews, and all their talk of a Messiah. And they get caught up in some measure in the excitement. Well, I don't know whether you're caught up in the excitement today. It's, uh, it's more about facing potential intimidation today than being caught up in the excitement. But, but we are part of this crowd, and we find something interesting and attractive about the faith, perhaps, of these Christians. Maybe that's you. And this man, Jesus Christ, fascinates us, even though we may be not truly sure about who he is and what it's all about. Well, these Greeks, they wanted an interview with Jesus. People are interested in interviewing royalty, aren't they? Prince Harry and all of that. Poor people living in palaces in the tax, on the taxpayer's dime. Got to feel sorry for them. Who wouldn't want an interview with Jesus? Well, they had a very cautious approach. And they weren't stupid, so they actually went to speak with Philip. Why did they go and speak with Philip? And not Barnabas or, uh, or Matthew or... Luke. Well, Philip, Philip was a man, first of all, with a Greek name, and he came from the territory of Bethsaida in Galilee. That was a Gentile territory, so they thought, well, here's the safe guy to speak to. Not sure about that Peter guy, but maybe I'll talk to Philip. And Philip goes and tells Andrew about their request. And Andrew's another Greek name. And so Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and tell him about the request. Now this is a moment 
of great messianic expectation because Jesus, don't forget, has just ridden into Jerusalem on a young donkey. And he's done that fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. He's ridden in as a king into Jerusalem. And now he's told in the outer precincts of the temple that the Gentiles are coming to him. And some of those disciples must have been asking themselves, well, we kind of know that some of them were, is this going to be the moment of the revolution? Is this the Semitic spring we've all been waiting for? Is this the moment for the political rising of Israel? Is this going to sweep away the Roman order and bring about the new order as a new leader ascends to earthly power? But the answer, as we know, was no. What was about to happen shocked even the closest of Jesus' disciples. That's why they all left him. The way that God was working to bring salvation to all people was not going to be through the outgrowth of Israel's religious fervor at the triumphal entry. And it wasn't going to be through the intellectual curiosity of the Greek mind. Jesus didn't come teaching a new philosophy that you had to get your head around. Path of redemption was one that was going to be a stumbling block to the Jewish expectation for Jesus. And it was going to be foolishness as far as the tradition of the wisdom of the Gentiles was concerned. And yet, in this remarkable moment, as Jesus approaches the cross and his death, we're actually reminded about the very beginning. The beginning of Jesus' life. Why? Well, at the birth of Christ, Gentiles from the east come up to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem because they'd seen the star of a king rising. Now at the end of Jesus' life, on the eve of his death at the cross, Gentiles come from the west. to come and witness a king riding into Jerusalem. The Magi from the east come to the cradle, from Persia, the Greeks from the west to the cross. Now, both both of these incidents, of course, are signifying the same reality, And it's the reason that we are here today. That reality is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the entire world, of all the nations, of all peoples. You want the answer to the problem of race in our culture? Jesus Christ is the Savior of all the tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples of the earth. And this moment 
signifies that Christ is our king as well. And so Jesus immediately indicates to them in our passage that this event pictures this coming of the Greeks to him with this question, we want to see Jesus, is a picture of his world mission. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The way of true victory, of true conquest, of the establishment of the kingdom of righteousness and peace was to be through this route that no one would have expected, the death of the cross. The image Jesus uses as he speaks to the crowd among whom these Greeks stood is a very interesting one. It's, a one, it's, a, it's an image from the natural world. He says, a seed must go into the ground before there can be a harvest. A seed has to go into the ground before there can be a harvest. Among all of the the whole Gentile world. Do you know that Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles from his own home? He never made any television appearances. He didn't give any interviews. But as a grain of wheat, he falls into the ground. That's how the harvest through all the nations was going to come about. Christ is the seed that must fall, must die, and be buried. And that's how the nations, that's how all the Gentiles were to enter the kingdom. He had to be lifted up. Now, to grasp the, the significance and the power of this moment, as these Greeks come to Jesus, it's actually helpful to be mindful of the context of those people. It's helpful to understand the cultural context from which they came, just for a moment. It's interesting how much the cultural context of the Greeks, of the Gentiles, is a concern for the Apostle Paul. Look at him in Acts chapter 17. Look at him in 1 Corinthians. He's concerned to understand, and he does understand, their culture, their mindset. Their thought drew its central idea, its central motive from two things, two basic ideas. Some of our classical Christian school students might be familiar with this. That was the first, the pre-Homeric religion of life and death. The, the, the really ancient Greek ideas of life and death, of fate. And the second idea was the cultural religion of the Olympian gods. The cultural religion of the Olympian gods. The first order, this pre-Homeric religion of life and death, basically, much like our own culture, deified nature, held to a belief in Mother Earth, basically. There was just the endless stream, the organic flow of time, the world of matter. The existence of everything in this stream of life was subjected to the horrible and merciless fate of death. And to the Greeks, that was a tragedy. 
They're famous for their tragedies. They're a very self-pitying culture. They thought this was a tremendous injustice, death, and they put it down to fate. The second part of their society as a culture, though, was their idea of the Olympian gods. Apollo was the great legislator. The gods have left Mother Earth with her stream of life and death and have now a personal and immortal form living on Mount Olympus. An invisible world of ideal, perfect form of true being. But these gods have no power over the terrible fate of death for mortals. You know, you may, you may feel somewhat disconnected from that aspect, but actually, it's much like the god of science and medicine of our own age. This is our cultural ideal. Health and safety, science is our God. You dare not dispute the science. And yet the science has no power over the fate of death. That's what people are terrified of. They're terrified. They can't help lamentable man when cruel death strikes him down, as Homer puts it in the Odyssey. And so they develop these two irreconcilable worlds of form and matter, ideas and a life of flux and death. And this was the terrible tension for the Greeks, for their thought and for their culture. It was fatalistic, it was hopeless. Man's idea trying to overcome death, not much has changed. Man's ideas trying to overcome death. And so various schools of thought developed with the Greeks, don't worry, I'm not going to bore you with a survey, with ideas about how to live life in the prison of the material world. So you've got this material world of life and death, this endless flux and flow of time, And you had these ideas about how to live in it. And they emphasized different things. The Stoics emphasized their reason and natural law. And the Epicureans, who Paul debated with, you'll remember, they emphasized a hedonistic lifestyle, much like the lifestyle of the modern West. Some of them were cynics. You didn't really think that there were any values left worth hanging on to. And these themes have remained with us in human thought up to the present. So the ideal person for Greek culture were the heroes. They were the philosopher kings. The, the public intellectuals, the scientists, the technocrats of the age who could organize and plan society and plan your salvation. Yeah, this group of Greeks in John 12, interested somehow in Yahweh, fascinated by the religious zeal of the Jews concerning the king, came and said, we want to see Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And what did they expect to see? 
do you think? A Homeric hero? Now I think we'd expect to see a, a medical doctor. A scientist. An ideal man? Did they expect to find an Adonis? A man fit for Olympus? We don't know. The text doesn't actually tell us. It just tells us there's these two Greeks. Or some Greeks, anyway. It's a bit like the three wise men. We don't know that there were three. There were some wise men. There were some Greeks. But this was their culture. This was their idea. This was their background. But they had come to the point of saying, we want to see Jesus. What they did find, must have surprised them, is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. He had no form. Remember the forms of the Greek gods? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think probably tired and exhausted by the religious culture of the Greco-Roman life and world and thought, its failures, its failure to answer the most best basic questions and meet the most basic needs, they wanted to see Jesus. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're a bit tired of everything that's going on and you want to see Jesus. Are you disillusioned and exhausted by the false answers of our bankrupt culture? Are you anxious at the prospect of decay and disease and death? Are you tired and worn down by a heavy heart and a guilty conscience? Do you feel let down by false hopes and empty experiences and you also today want to see Jesus. Well, we can. We can actually see him with the eyes of our heart as we focus on the cross of the Lord Jesus. That's what Good Friday is about. For in this man, though these Gentiles didn't yet know it, lay the only answer to life and death and to Greek thought and to Jewish expectations the expectations that the Jews had so earnestly sought for so long and the answer to the thought, the wrestling of the Greek mind, the Gentile mind for so long. In fact, the Paul the Apostle tells us that it's in, in Christ alone that life and immortality is actually brought to light. It's in Christ that life and immortality is brought to light. It's in him that we have the answer to the misery and sorrow of decay and disease and death to which sin has subjected man. Sins that left us to our sense of self-pity 
and to fatalistic resignation in some cases. But to all minds imprisoned by false philosophy, God's means of bringing life and immortality to the light at the cross seems like more folly. It seems initially like more defeat. It seems like more death and shame. And this is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. And folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called. Both Jew and Greek. Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's one wonderful British missiologist, Leslie Newbegin, who's dead now, put it, that the crucifixion of a man should be the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is as scandalous to Jewish religious messianism as it is absurd to Greek philosophy. And both groups couldn't understand it. The so-called wisdom or philosophy of Gentile culture had proven utterly futile in addressing the despair, decay, and death of our world and of revealing life and immortality. Its ethics had no answer to the problem of sin. And its polis, that's its city-state, had no ability to bring righteousness and justice to bear. So these people wanted to see Jesus. And as we look at the moral and ethical state of our culture, and the failure of our answer to the biggest questions in a secularizing and paganizing world, we need to see Jesus. We should ask to see Jesus today in our own hearts. The second question, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, in verse 27. This second question in the text is the one the Lord himself asks rhetorically because he already knew the answer and had determined his course. Jesus knew that the whole purpose of his coming was for this hour. Look at verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For this purpose, he says in verse 27, I have come to this hour. That is why I came to this hour. He'd come to die. Now, John makes clear that this was going to glorify the Father. It would glorify the Son and it would bring sons to glory. It was going to accomplish the salvation of the people and the nation. 
The debt of sin was going to be paid in full. And this is what uh, it means in verse 31 when Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Because justice and mercy were meeting in this moment. We often don't think about that, that the moment of the cross was also the moment of the judgment of this world. Yes, it looked like shame and disgrace to the Jewish mind. It looked like foolishness to the Greek mind. But this was actually the moment when judgment and mercy and God's victory was being accomplished. The stranglehold of Sin and death and the devil, the adversary, was being overcome. This is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All lawlessness, all illegitimate rule was being overcome in this moment. The context in which Christ so powerfully declares this is one in which he accepts his purpose and prays for God to glorify his name, in which he is deeply troubled in his own humanity. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that is why I came to this hour. So we shouldn't overlook the genuineness of the struggle and of the suffering, of the agony of this moment. His real agony of soul heralded a real death, but it wasn't the death, it wasn't a fatalistic death of a hero of the Gentiles, of a pagan hero. Rather, just as Jesus wept over the tomb of Lazarus, he confronted death as Scripture does as the consequence of sin and alienation from God. You know that death, all the disease and death and suffering, is a visible sign and instrument of God's judgment on all of our lives. That's why it's called the last enemy in the Bible. If you're one of those Christians who thinks, well, you know, death is just escape to a better life, that's, a, that's not a biblical idea. That's a, that's a pagan idea. Death is the manifestation of the judgment of God upon sin. And that's why the cross, Christ taking that death upon himself, is so important. He faced it knowing full well what it entailed and knowing the weight of God's wrath against sin was to fall on him, that he was to be the sin bearer, not a Greek hero, not a political martyr, but the sin bearer. Despite his submission to the will of the Father, the Garden of Gethsemane does remind us of the bitter agony of soul. The bitter agony of soul that he experienced as he faced the prospect of betrayal, of rejection, of a cruel death, and more than all of that, bearing upon himself sin and the separation he would experience from his father that led him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That was the depth of the agony. It was real. And he experienced it in the fullness of his humanity as a human being. It wasn't escape. It was the bearing of the wrath of God against sin. Now, John does remind us then that his soul is troubled. Nonetheless, the question of our Lord in this text always has a certain answer. He would not ask God to save him from this hour for which he had come. His obedience would glorify God. And John tells us here at the close of his earthly ministry, just as we saw at the beginning of his ministry, at the close of his ministry, a voice from heaven testifies to the truth for the benefit of those standing around. I have glorified it. When Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, the voice from heaven came, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The heart of the purpose of history was about to be revealed at the cross. And so here at the cross, here at the heart of the good news is a unique, final and decisive action in which the one by whom all things were made, the source and foundation of all life, surrenders his will freely, willingly, in loving obedience to the Father, in his love for the world, he lays down his life for the sin of the world. In this treacherous moment, when all seems lost, in the darkness of Golgotha, the earth shaking, Here in the mystery of the plan of God, Christ brings the nations to himself. This is the answer to the Greeks. It is finished. It is finished. It's for this reason that in response to being told the Gentiles wish to see him, that Jesus actually makes a promise. He makes this promise. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You can see it there, Philip and Andrew. Lord, the Gentiles want to speak to you. Isn't this the moment you've been waiting for? (laughs) When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself and look around this room we've got every shade every nationality well many most of the ones that live in Toronto we're living testament to the truth of the promise that Jesus made to Philip and Andrew when I am lifted up I will draw all people To myself. And he said this to show, John tells us, by what kind of death he was going to die. The last question How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? This is verse 34. Who is this Son of Man? It's a two parter, really, isn't it? 
It's a two-part question. Both parts betray the ignorance and blindness of the crowd, both the Jews and the Greeks. That's the amazing thing. Both of them. Who is this son of man? How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? They could not understand the cross because they didn't truly recognize the son of man for who he was. The king born to Mary, who the Gentiles from the east came to see, who brought myrrh for his burial. Neither the messianic ideas of the Jews nor the wisdom ideals of the Greeks could grasp at that moment the power and the wisdom of God in this greatest of all signs, the cross. In an important sense, we can, as we look at the cross and we see Christ lifted up, it's as though he ascended a wooden throne pointing to all parts of the earth, the north, the south, the east, and the west. When I am lifted up, all corners of the earth will be drawn to me. And there nailed above his head in the languages of the known world was the sign Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Romans were inadvertently identifying his royal status. What I have written, I have written. Christ had promised, remember, that many would come, he said, from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in his kingdom. If you're a Christian here today, as you sit, you sit down today with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the family of God. In this moment of apparent defeat, you see, Satan was being dethroned and all his works, and Christ was gathering the nations to himself. And those who judged falsely, who gathered to sit in judgment upon Christ, who nailed him up to make him and his claims a public exhibition for the world to mock, didn't know what they were doing. As he was lifted up, Paul tells us, Colossians 2, 14 through 15, Paul says, this is what was happening on that first Good Friday. He was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's what was happening that first Good Friday, and this is why the sun had to be lifted up. He, he was turning tables. He was turning tables on all illegitimate power and authority in earth and in heaven and triumphing over them. And from the cross sat in judgment, cancelling our debt of sin. And you know, the foot of that cross, the power of it, penetrated to Hades itself. The Apostle Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
which he went, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. And that's why at the conclusion of the Apostles' Creed, we read, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, he descended to the dead. The foot of the cross penetrated into Sheol itself. As Christ was lifted up, all the power of death and hell was being broken and we were being released. Do you remember a few years ago, the incredible story about the Chilean miners? Many of them were Christians, actually. Trapped 2,000 feet under a mountain in the depths of the earth for two months. Imagine that. 2,000 feet down in a hole for two months. There's a film, actually, a few years ago about their story. It's called The 33. Some of you may have seen it. Finally, after weeks and weeks of that mortal danger, a huge drill reaches them. Can you imagine what it must have been like in that hole, hearing the sound of the drill drawing close and then seeing the drill bit, this huge drill bit, and pulls you out of destruction and the pit of despair. As the psalmist declared it, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. That is the answer to the final question. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? It's the only way of salvation for the nations. It's the only way of salvation for you and me. Christ redeems from the pit and cancels sin. As to the second part of the question, if it were not yet clear to us, who is this Son of Man? The answer is actually given to us at the foot of the cross as the Lord Jesus breathes his last and a group of Gentile soldiers look on in astonishment. As the earth shakes and Jesus breathes his last and cries out, it is finished. This is what the the apostle Matthew tells us. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. Son of man, Son of God. The one who came and suffered as fully man is also fully God. He is the promised and anointed one, the creator and redeemer of the world the Christ, the Son of the living God. And today, we behold him at the cross as we sang in that hymn this morning, Man of Sorrows, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. 
Jesus tells the crowd, therefore, here in John 12, he says, even to us now, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The hour has come. Don't miss the significance and power of it today, friends, especially now. Victory over sin and death and disease. Victory over all the powers. Victory say there's no king but Caesar. Those who think they bring Christ into judgment are themselves brought into judgment. With those lost Greeks, ask to see Jesus today. Turn toward him at the cross and the Holy Spirit will open your eyes. For God says through the prophet Isaiah, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. As I close, we remember how after Jesus breathed his last and his side was pierced, And he was taken down from the cross and he was laid in a tomb. We end where we started. The grain of wheat has fallen into the earth. The grain of wheat falls and dies. The seed of the harvest is sown. Sown today. And Sunday beckons us. As one poet has written, Call Robin, winter's end is near, and all the promises of God are leaf and bud. How long the storm has covered me. Let's come to the Lord's table.